We turn now to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, which is in 1 Corinthians as we're continuing our study of that letter. We read a verse today, which uh, we read last time, two weeks ago when I was last here in this pulpit. We'll just read verse 7 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. So this is our scripture lesson for today, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, the word of the Lord as he gave to the Apostle Paul. And so let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's infallible, inerrant, and glorious word. Again, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading. It's preaching and it's hearing. Well, two weeks ago, as we considered the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 5, uh, we saw the necessity of biblical church discipline, of the biblical practice of church discipline. But in that context, we read Paul's statement, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And I promised then that I would dig, Lord willing, a bit deeper into the meaning of that statement that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. So, uh, so that's what I intend to do for us today. Uh, for those of you who were in evening services recently, much of this won't be anything new to you for when we covered uh, Passover a while back. To understand what Paul's meaning is here, what does Paul mean when he says uh, Christ is our Passover, we're going to look at some scriptures about the Passover as well as at least one other related Old Testament passage and tie these uh, to some things that the New Testament tells us about Jesus Christ. Our applications are going to be pretty simple. Number one, trust in Jesus Christ alone for your standing before God. And number two, if you do that, if you do trust in Christ alone already, then show your gratitude to him through godly living. He has saved you from your sins and their consequences, so show that gratitude to him through godly living. This relates, of course, to our evening series of late through the Ten Commandments, uh, where we have been noting two particular uses of the law for God's people. There are generally considered to be three uses of the law. Uh, One of them is uh, to convict God's people that they need a Savior, to recognize that we are sinners. The second use of the law is to show us then how we respond. How do we serve the God who has saved us by His grace? The third use has to do with the reprobate or with the rest of the world, uh, recognizing that uh, knowledge of God's law keeps the world from being as bad as it could be. And so God, in His common grace, Uh, allows his law to to keep people from being quite as wicked as they would have been otherwise, which of course is mainly for the sake of his people, that they would have a better world to live in. But there are those two uses that are particularly for God's people, convicting us of our sin and teaching us we need a Savior, and then also teaching us how to serve our Savior God. And so that will have to do with our second point here. Show your gratitude to God through godly living. 
Again, Paul says, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. When the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, the Lord sent Moses to Pharaoh to declare his command, Let my people go. This is a familiar account of history that you probably know. And you, pro- you probably know, excuse me, the history of what followed then also. The Lord sent plagues upon Egypt. The Nile turned to blood. The plague of frogs that followed, the lice, the flies, the plagues on the cattle, boils, fiery hail, locusts, and three days of darkness. And each time one of these plagues would come, Pharaoh would temporarily relent. But then, as God pronounced, both Pharaoh would harden his heart and God would harden his heart. There's no conflict there. God's sovereign over these things. Pharaoh would be hardened. And finally, uh, then after nine plagues, each time uh, Pharaoh seeming to relent, but then saying, no, I'm not actually going to let the people go once the plague went away, the Lord pronounced a tenth plague. This tenth plague was to come upon every household, every family in the land of Egypt. The death of the firstborn. But as we read earlier this morning in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord also set forth to Moses a way that his people could escape this wrath of God that was being poured out on the land of Egypt. Notice that they didn't escape it by virtue simply of being Israelites. There were some of the plagues where God sent them on Egypt and the Israelites would have been uh, hit by it as well. And some of them that God kept from hitting the land of Goshen, that the Israelites would be spared. But this one was coming on the whole land of Egypt. And Israel wasn't going to be spared it simply because they were Israel. But there was a way that they could avoid this wrath being poured out on the land of Egypt. On the tenth day of the month of Abib later known as the month of Nisan also, so it sounds like, but spelled differently than the the vehicle, Uh, the month that included the spring equinox, uh, each household was to select a lamb, and it had to be a lamb in its first year. It was to be without blemish. Originally, the lamb could actually have been a, a lamb from the sheep or also a kid of the goats. And on the 14th day of Abib, at evening, literally between the two evenings in the Hebrew, uh, so twilight, or uh, traditional Scott might call it the gloaming, or something like that. So that that time uh, when the sun has set, but it's not quite dark yet. At twilight, the lamb would be killed. And some of its blood was to be taken back, as notice the language uh, implies that Israel was to gather together to do this. And some of the blood of that lamb was to be collected and taken back and would be smeared on the posts and the lintel of the door to each house where this meal was to be eaten. And so people would enter through that door as they went to eat this meal. If a household did not have enough people to consume the whole lamb before morning, they were to get more people uh, from a household who might have too many. Uh, The customary number later became 10 to 20 people, or some would say 10 to 15, in a company. 
Think of Jesus and his disciples. They were 13. They fit that parameter. The lamb was to be roasted whole and eaten entirely. Even the entrails, you recall, were roasted with it. Its head was on it. And if people didn't eat those parts, of course, anything that was left over in the morning had to be burned so that the, the sacrifice was totally consumed. The lamb was eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Unleavened bread and herbs gathered before they were ripe, which symbolized the hasty departure that was to follow Passover. Also, the bitter herbs, of course, later would remind the Israelites from generation to generation of their bitter experience of slavery in Egypt and how the Lord had rescued them from it. But also symbolizing their hasty departure, along with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs, was that they were to dress, as the scripture said, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Dressed, ready to get up and go at any moment. The Lord passed through Egypt then, that night, striking the firstborn of each household. But he declared, when I see the blood, speaking of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you when I strike the land of Egypt. The only way that they could avoid that plague was not by any other means, but by following the Lord's instruction and placing the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and their lintel. Hence the name of the feast observed in remembrance of that event, the Lord said, I will pass over. The Hebrew word is Pesach. It comes from a root meaning to step or to leap over something. The Aramaic equivalent of it, Aramaic is a very similar language to Hebrew, has a lot in common. In fact, if you can read biblical Hebrew, it doesn't take a whole lot to figure out how to read biblical Aramaic. But the word in Hebrew is Pesach, in Aramaic it's Pascha. It was borrowed by Greek, and from that we get words like Paschal Lamb. That's sort of thing, referring to the Lamb of the Passover. There were some differences between the first Passover and the feast, uh, which was celebrated later in remembrance of it. Leviticus 23, verses 4 and 5 tell us, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed time. On the 14th of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So notice first it was a holy convocation. It's a gathering of Israel together. A time of gathering for public worship. In Deuteronomy 16, 1-8, Moses said, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it. That is the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrifice the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. 
You may not sacrifice the Passover within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, but at the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall sacrifice the Passover at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you came out of Egypt, and you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. So instead of observing the Passover wherever they happened to be, it was to be observed at a central sanctuary. That's a major thing that we learn from that passage in Deuteronomy. Eventually that was going to be Jerusalem, where the Lord chose to place his name. As David set it up as his capital, and then of course his son Solomon built the temple there. In Deuteronomy there, no mention is made of eating this meal, you'll notice, with a belt around your waist, sandals on your feet, or a staff in your hand. But rather, it was going to be a celebration. From David and Solomon's time onward, the Israelites would gather not for an exodus from the land of captivity, but for a feast at Jerusalem. This is what Jesus himself observed. Great preparations would be made in and around Jerusalem, therefore, for this time when, by the time of Christ, millions would gather at the city of Jerusalem. So that they would include, these preparations would include things like road and bridge repairs the month before, the whitewashing of tombs and graves uh, to avoid any accidental contact with the dead and uh, because the extra rules that the Pharisees added, they, they would say, well, you're not only not supposed to have contact with the dead, just don't have any contact with a grave at all. Uh, and so they would whitewash the tombs, whitewash the, mark the graves clearly, so that people would not be considered ceremonially unclean by inadvertent contact with the dead. And important for our understanding, let me mention before I move on to that, uh, when you hear... Jesus say that the Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. They're beautiful on the outside, but inside are dead men's bones. Uh, he was using an illustration from the landscape around him. As his disciples could see around Jerusalem, whitewashed tombs. They looked beautiful, shining in the sunlight, clearly marking here. In fact, this is a place that you want to avoid. Why? Because inside are dead men's bones. It's not a flattering thing to be compared to that. Say that you look good on the outside, but actually you are unclean on the inside. But important for our understanding of 1 Corinthians 5 7 uh, is that each household where the Passover meal and the following feast of unleavened bread would be observed, indeed, every household in the land, according to Deuteronomy, there would be swept thoroughly and carefully to ensure that any leaven, any yeast, which might be in the house is removed. Two men from each paschal company, often a father and son, but in the case of Jesus and his Last Supper, it was Peter and John, we know from Scripture, uh, would take a lamb to the temple in the afternoon. Starting around three in the afternoon, these, there was a sacrifice, and then these lambs would be killed. They'd be slain by the cutting of the throat, and a priest would collect 
the blood of that lamb in a bowl and it would be passed up to the altar where a priest would pour the blood, splash it on the base of the altar. And you can imagine uh, just the, how uh, lamb after lamb being slain, uh, men, two men at a time, or a father and a son, uh, bring, uh, bringing a lamb into the temple, and one after the other, and just hundreds of them, maybe thousands at the same time being slain, uh, this constant bloodletting, and this blood being splashed all afternoon on the altar. A grave reminder of the fact that sin demands death as its penalty. The lamb would then be taken back to the prearranged place of celebration to be roasted. And so again, Peter and John would have done that. As with the original Passover... This lamb was to be fully consumed by morning or any leftovers would have to be burned. Again, there's a full consumption of the lamb. It was eaten with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And Lord willing, I'll be able to give some more details about the Passover in Jesus' day, uh, the customs and the order of events, the meal. Uh, when we get to 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, we talk about those sorts of things, like the cup of blessing which we bless. Uh, Paul makes that reference. He's actually referring to a particular uh, cup that came in a particular place in the traditional Passover supper. But in the case of Jesus' last supper, he used the context of this meal to institute the new covenant sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In Luke 22, 14 through 20, Luke tells us, When the hour had come, he, that's Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Notice that this meal is no longer in remembrance of deliverance from Egypt, but it's now in remembrance of Jesus. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus says. Each year when the Passover lambs were being sacrificed, the people of Israel would have done this in remembrance. They would have been reminded of the deliverance from Egypt, but also they would have been reminded anywhere who were biblically astute would have known they were looking forward to a greater salvation than that deliverance that they had received from slavery, from an earthly slavery in Egypt. In Genesis 22, we read, Now it came to pass, after these things that Abraham tested, or excuse me, that God tested Abraham, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Now, by the way, that's just the the way that people would have said Yes, I acknowledge that you're talking to me. It's uh, not like God didn't know where Abraham was, and Abraham would say, here I am. Uh, The same thing with Abraham speaking with his son here in a little bit. 
Let's read. But and he said, "Here I am." Then he said, "God said, now take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you." So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Now, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 clarifies for us, explains to us, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him, in a figurative sense. In other words, Abraham knew God had promised to give him descendants. His seed would be named through Isaac, not through another son. Even the savior of the world, who was the ultimate seed of Abraham, had to come through Isaac. Well, Isaac didn't have any children yet. So Abraham concluded, if I actually go through with this, if the Lord doesn't intervene, and I sacrifice my son, the Lord must be planning to raise him up from the dead. So Abraham knew and understood this. In Genesis 22, Moses continues, Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So notice he's expecting Isaac to be with him. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. That's a foreshadowing of the cross, by the way, borne by Jesus. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. And you likely know what followed. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Notice that the angel of the Lord is the Lord. There, he's the pre-incarnate Christ saying, You have not withheld your son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Rabbis, theologians, before the coming of Christ wrestled with this passage. Not because they were confused about Abraham's obedience or anything like that. I think most of them understood what Hebrews tells us. That that Abraham knew, if I go through with this, the Lord must be planning to raise up Isaac from the dead because... Otherwise, how can he keep his word to bring the seed through Isaac? 
But here Abraham the prophet of the Lord declared on the way up the mountain, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. That is to say for a sacrifice for sin. But in that context he provided not a lamb instead of Isaac, but a ram. Where and when would God's lamb appear? Well, in the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, another prophet gives us the answer. John the Baptist, seeing Jesus, declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. People who heard John say that, that's in John 1, 29, people who heard John the Baptist say that would have understood what he meant. The Lamb of God. Oh, that Lamb that God promised, or that Abraham said the Lord would provide for himself. This man is that Lamb? Each Passover, as lambs were sacrificed, their blood being poured out on the altar, one after the other after the other, their bodies consumed totally. The theologically astute were reminded, there is yet to come a Lamb of God that He will provide for Himself. Well, Jesus Christ is that Lamb. That's why Paul says here, He is our Passover. It's by him that the Lord's wrath passes over his people. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the context of Passover. Saying that you're not looking through these lambs back to something that happened in the past to Egypt and looking forward anymore to this Lamb of God to come. Now you're going to have this sacrament in remembrance of me, Jesus said. It would be his blood that would be shed for the remission of sins. He also pointed to a time of his return, as we read there in Luke, looking forward to what Revelation 19.9 calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, when he said he would not eat of this meal again until it was consummated in his kingdom. Passover had looked back to deliverance from slavery in Egypt and forward to deliverance from sin and death when God would provide his own Lamb. The Lord's Supper looks back to Christ's atoning sacrifice, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, and forward to the full consummation of his kingdom at his return. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Christ is the unblemished, the sinless Lamb of God. As the Passover lamb was eaten and eaten whole or consumed in the morning by fire, Jesus offered himself fully, taking the wrath of God in totality for his people. There's nothing left over for you. Jesus paid it all. As the ancient Israelites in the days of Moses entered into the household through that blood-covered door, They were thus spared the wrath of God as they went through that doorway with blood on the posts and the lintel. God's wrath is coming upon the land. So may you be spared. God's wrath is coming upon the earth for the sins of the world. And you can be spared it if you are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lord's true Passover. Remember the words of the Lord in Exodus 12, 13, When I see the blood... I will pass over. As one anonymous ancient church father wrote, it is the cross that is the saving reality signified by the Passover in the Old Testament. 
Trust in Jesus Christ alone for your standing before God, for there is no other way to be saved from the wrath of God to come. The Israelites at the time of the death of the firstborn in Egypt could not hope to be spared if they relied on their own goodness, their own bloodline, if they trusted a false god or hoped in their their own good works, if they trusted anything but the way of salvation that God had given them, the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. Only the blood of the Lamb could cover them and rescue them from this picture of God's wrath. And so it's true for you and me. Only the blood of God's Lamb can cover you and spare you the wrath of God for sin. Trust in Jesus Christ alone. And if you do trust in Jesus Christ alone, in response to so great a salvation as this, show your gratitude through holy living. We touched on this much uh, two weeks ago, so I don't need to reiterate it too much here, but Paul says, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Unleavened bread appropriately accompanied the Passover lamb. And just as that was true, you and I, if we are in Christ, are truly unleavened. God counts us as unleavened, as appropriate to accompany his Passover lamb. Sin has been removed from you in God's eyes through faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says there, then act like it. Purge out the leaven since you really are unleavened. Show your gratitude to Christ through holy living. Purge out those things in your life which are displeasing to God, represented by leaven in that scenario. And be an appropriate accompaniment, as it were. An appropriate side dish for the Lamb of God. Show your gratitude to God through holy living. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise and thank you that Christ, your Lamb, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Build up our trust, we pray, in Him, and grant that we may show our gratitude through holy living as we learn to purge out those things which are displeasing to you and to embrace those things which you love, that we might show indeed that we are Christ's people as we learn to be more like Him. And as we pray now in His blessed name, Amen.